Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 356 of the podcast. My name is Kerry Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. I am so excited to bring you today's guest, Darius Daniels, somebody that I have been spending time with over the last year or two, and we kind of go all over the place, including all about communication, and uh, he's so good at it. And today's episode is brought to you by Glue. If you want to learn more about that seemingly anonymous online audience you have, you will be shocked at what you can discover about them by going to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's G-L-O-O, insights.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, and check out ServeHQ's online software subscription tools for churches at servehq.church. Get a free, no obligation, 14-day trial account It's like a private social media and communication network for your church. So that's servehq.church. So uh, Darius Daniels is somebody I have been getting to know over the last little while. Uh, He is a thought leader and one of the finest communicators I've ever heard. And uh, many would call him one of the best communicators in America today. So we break down how to communicate in an excellent way. Uh, learning leadership the hard way. I just love how transparent he is and how to live with greater relational intelligence. Darius is the founder and lead pastor of Change Church. It's a vibrant, diverse congregation with multiple campuses in New Jersey and Orlando. Uh, He has a doctorate in ministry from Fuller Theological Seminary and Dr. Daniel speaks to national audiences and sits on the board of the National Association of Evangelicals. And it's a really fun conversation. Well, 2020 has been that year and uh, you are now online. But do you have any idea who is watching you? And the answer for most church leaders is like, no, I just know how many three second, 10 second, one minute views are. Uh, you know, my staff come to me with like YouTube stuff, but like, I don't know who these people are. And uh, even if you're resuming in-person services, online is here to stay. Well, What if you could actually know your audience? That's what's happening with Insights Plus. Uh, From my friends at Glue, your friends at Glue, Insights Plus removes the confusion to bridge the digital gap and restore connection between you and your people. You'll actually be able to see who's viewing your website to know, are you ready for this, whether they're members or visitors, and to see whether they're local or nationwide, or even double-click on neighborhoods, and then re-engage them with next steps. Yes, specifically. Believe it or not, this technology exists. It just got released. So if you want clarity on who's watching online, go to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. So that's spelled G-L-O-O insights.com forward slash C-A-R-E-Y, just my name. And that will get you to all of that. And then we're also partnering with ServeHQ. If you've never heard of them, you need to check them out because what they do is they offer two online subscription software tools for churches, trained up and huddle up. And these are the tools you can use to engage and equip your church no matter where your people are. So what do you use trained up and huddle up for? Well, how would you like to be able to engage in mass video text messages and video emails? And then your church is in the loop. And because here's here's the truth about social media, right? If you're like, well, I got Instagram. It's like, yeah, but that's controlled by an algorithm. What if you could go direct What if you could just bypass everything? Plus they've got their safe chat feature that lets you stay in direct contact with your people without worrying about inappropriate private communications. It's like a smart 
private social platform for your church members uh, and volunteers. And they just launched a brand new feature called follow-ups. So what that does is this can automate messaging, training, follow-up task assignment, and even workflow for your church. So it's a super simple system that allows you to create a time-delayed sequence of actions or tasks. A lot of people, to make that simple, here's, here's what a lot of people do. It's like, well, got to send an email Thursday, so you send it Thursday. What if you could just have your, you or your team line it all up and it just sends when it's supposed to send? So if you're curious and want to learn more, why not get a free, no-obligation 14-day trial? You can do that by going to servehq.church and you can get it there. So check them out at servehq.church. Well, time to jump into today's conversation. I'm so pleased to bring you my chat with Darius Daniels. Darius, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited about this conversation. I'm really honored. I love the mm. podcast. I listen to it. I'm a follower and a fan. And so I'm just just excited to, to, to be able to participate. Well, and one of the things, well, it's an honor to have you. It really is. But one of the things I discovered uh, getting ready for this that we had in common is you're a Princeton grad and I was almost a Princeton grad, but not really because I didn't go in the end, but I was all lined up to go and then something happened. How was your time at Princeton? You know, it was great. Now, my seminary experience was amazing because the school is a melting pot. And so you really have people from all over the world who converge into this small town. I mean, um, Prince is not a big yeah. town at all, but you got it people. It is really small. <laughs> they converge, yeah. converge all over the world in that town. My my largest adjustment, the, the most challenging adjustment was the climate and the weather. And it was really, I don't just say that in terms of convenience. It was really a challenge. It was a lifestyle adjustment, a mood adjustment. And coming from Mississippi, living in the South, Listen, I think I needed some, I needed a support system for that weather once I moved back. <laughs> I'm glad you raised that because I talked to a lot of leaders who really struggle with the weather. And let's be honest, it's always the winter. It's never like, oh, I hate summer. I can't wait for it to be over. But, uh, and I know people in the deep South, they prefer autumn and spring because it's not as oppressively hot. But what was, what was the challenge? Was it the darkness or was it the cold, uh, like the gloominess or the cold or what was it? So, yeah, I didn't like the gloominess. So that, I think that was, that was more of a matter of convenience and maybe mood. The climate, the weather was the, the, the hardest challenge for me. And this is why it wasn't just because I didn't have the proper coats. I didn't. Right. <laughs> but it was because of how it affected me socially. See. Oh, really? Yeah, it affected my social life. I had to make adjustments in terms of what I was accustomed to doing in the winter. In Mississippi, I could pretty much do anything all year round. It got so cold in New Jersey, man. It's like you get out of the car, you want to go to the house. <laughs> <laughs> really? So, I mean, you could golf year round. You could you could hang out outside year round in Mississippi. But in New Jersey, you were kind of like stuck indoors. Yeah, absolutely. You could eat outside all year round in Mississippi. You could fish if you're into that. You could golf if you're into that. You could play basketball outdoors if you're into that. You could just interact socially differently. And so mm. that took that took a while for me to make that adjustment. Yeah, and then that was only what, four years of your life or so? So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, but you know, I was there. What I I I was in there. I thought I was gonna do three years and head back south and got stuck and ended up in New Jersey. What I've been there now, 18 years or so. 
18 years. So it wasn't fatal for you in the end. You're still there. <laughs> I survived. You survived. And uh, well, you know, a lot of people would call you and we enjoyed yet Rethink Leadership last year. You'll be back this year, both at Orange Conference and Rethink Leadership, but a bit of a a cultural architect and also a cultural trendsetter for your generation. Um, When they describe you that way, what are they talking about? Like, how do you see yourself that way? How does that work? Talk to us about that. I think I see myself that way in some sense. I think the description is probably a description that's that's more contextual than anything else. And this is what this is what I mean by that. I mean, so when I so for me, the word architect kind of describes my leadership identity. I'm a dreamer and a designer. I can dream it and I can design it strategically, but I'm not the construction guy. I don't. I don't, I don't, I don't build it like that. You know, um, some pastors love meetings. I tolerate meetings. Um, so I'm the dreamer, the designer, but I'm not the builder. So architect in that sense, I think cultural and trendsetter, that's what I mean. When I say contextual, I think those words refer most out of that because we decided when we planted our church to take an approach to ministry that was really different from the approach that's traditionally taken by African-American leaders. Mm. And so there's this experience in the African-American church that is rich in tradition and certain trends and certain approaches and certain values. And so what we wanted to do was to take some of those same values and figure out what does it mean to reinvent them for another generation Hmm. who needs church done differently? And so, you know, maybe to the global church, some of the things that we did would not be considered trendsetting. But in the context of the tradition I was hewed out of, we had to be highly experimental and innovative. And I think um, the challenge is sometimes, and I'm sure other people in other contexts can relate to this, I guess, in some way, sometimes a break from an approach isn't just seen as a break from an approach. It's it's all at times it's seen as a betrayal of our identity, like, oh, mm-hmm. this isn't good enough for you anymore. This is the way we do it. And so we had to work through a lot of that. And so I think that's what those terms refer to. Oh, that's fascinating. Can you give me an example of of that? Because you've been at this, you said, is it uh, 18 years and then you started Change Church how many years ago? What year did you Four, begin? 14 years ago. So 14 years ago. So 06, roughly? 05, 06? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So with all that in mind, because I think that's a really important point and I don't want to gloss over it. And and I don't know that it's just African-American. I mean, there are people who are transitioning traditional churches in Caucasian world or other streams. And it's like, you are being disloyal, like almost, almost like you're being a heretic. Right. So what would, what did that look like in your context? So I can start with something as simple as like, um, worship style. Yep. And something that's really, really germane to my tradition, and that is the gospel music experience. Mm-hmm. And it is not that that music was or is irrelevant, but it was that there was a, a shift we saw generationally in terms of how people were connecting with music outside of church and having it and having a completely different experience in church. And we were trying to figure out for us, what does it mean now to take like the value and the essence of that tradition 
and reinvented stylistically for a people group who just simply didn't connect with it the same way. And uh, that's that was something that was huge for us. I mean, some of the criticism and the backlash that we got. I mean, it was nothing volatile, uh, nothing violent, excuse me, but it was, it did get volatile at times because mm-hmm. people had really, really deep emotional and spiritual attachments to a certain type of musical experience when they came to a church. So something as simple as we do, we do have a choir, but our choir may sing once a month, as opposed to in the church I grew up in, you have multiple choirs that sang every Sunday. So that's a difference. What I, I'm, I'm curious, because I want to drill down. Uh, what style of music did you end up adopting? Yeah, so I wouldn't say we switched genres. We just pulled a little bit from all of them. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. we pulled a little bit from all of them. So if someone came they may hear a song that would be in the CCM category, mm-hmm. but it would be done the way that it would, that it was done in Nashville. <laughs> so that was a little different. And for us, that was missional, right? It was missional. It wasn't, you know, it was just trying to be trendy. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, um, I'm curious because I've had this conversation at different points, particularly with Rich Birch. I think it was Rich who first planted this in my head years ago. But if you look at the way a lot of churches do music, it's sort of guitar-based, what we call contemporary Christian style. But you look at what most people are listening to in the community, it is not guitar-based music. I mean, hip-hop, I think, is responsible for well over half of all music stream today. How have you responded to that as a leader and a cultural architect with your church, with Change Church? Well, we felt like that was probably one of the things that caused us to um, to see that we needed to make a shift early on. Not, not in the sense that we wanted music, that, not in the sense that we wanted hip-hop music in our church, but the types of chords, the types of connection, the types of energy, the type of rhythm that made that type of music so popular was something we felt like we needed to explore because there was something about it and the energy of it that made people connect to it. And so it wasn't the type of music that you kind of clap your hands to, which was what we did in church, but it was the type of music that you could rock to. And, <laughs> and, and so we were trying to figure out what does it look like for us to see how people are responding to this in culture and to create an experience where we could redeem that and help them connect with God. So you were you were probably alienating or upsetting, maybe is a better word, people who were used to a gospel tradition, so to speak, of music. But were there points where you started the change? And again, you've been at this over a decade, so I'm sure you've had to change again, where the pushback was really surprising to you. You're like, really? You're upset? Did you have those moments? You know what? I felt like I, I, I didn't. I was probably oh, wow. disappointed by some of the pu- pushback, but I wasn't surprised. Part of it was because 
I grew up as a pastor's kid. My past, mm. my father pastored in a very rural area. He's bivocational. And I saw the kinds of things people in church got upset about. <laughs> I mean, so, oh man, I saw them get upset about pictures being moved and um, the placement of chairs on the pulpit. Um, yeah, so much. So um, I, I, I think I was pre- prepared in some sense for that. So you think uh, you think dad had it harder probably <laughs> in one sense, oh, right? Night and day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier, Darius, which I, I, again, I didn't want to gloss over, but you said you're visionary and you knew you weren't going to build it. Um, that revelation usually does not come right away to a lot of leaders. I had to figure that out the hard way. Can you explain that? Is that something you knew right off the bat? Did you discover it the hard way? And then how the bigger question under the question is how, cause you built a great church. How did you compensate for that? Yes. So it is not something I knew initially. Uh Um, My understanding of pastoral ministry is you're supposed to dream it, design it and build it. And I tried to dream it, design it and build it. And it led to um, emptiness, frustration, I think stagnation with our organization. And I think even emotional unhealth for me, because there are some areas I just felt like I kept striking out in. And that's just not helpful for any leader, I think, emotionally. And so I finally, I, I, I don't remember what happened that flipped the switch for me. It was probably a compilation of all of those things over a period of time that got me to the point where I had to accept that leadership to some degree is customized. Hmm. God gifted us, wired, wired us differently. And some people knock Goliath down with a rock. Some people can knock him down with a sword. Some people use a javelin or a bow and arrow, but either way, as long as Goliath gets knocked down, that's what matters. And so for me, we, we then took the liberty and, and some people may take issue with it, but it served us well to design a leadership model that comp, that took advantage of what I was, mm. but also compensated for, I needed builders. I, I could dream it. I could design it, but I needed people that would manage it, oversee it to completion, follow up, things of that particular nature, because that was areas I was not strong in and it was not life given to me and it was not helpful for our church. Hmm. What part of that journey was the hardest for you? Because I imagine that's not an easy transition. I mean, we can talk about it in two minutes now, but that wasn't a two minute switch. So can you walk us through it? Because I imagine that there are many leaders listening, particularly young leaders who are like, man, I'm there right now. Can you break that down a little bit more for us and, and how you realized it and how you made the change? What part was difficult of that? Yeah, so sure. So there were a couple of practical things that with our church that brought me to the revelation, that conclusion that, okay, I feel like I need to bring someone or some people on the team and give them direction, but give them the authority to do this. And so one was, I just think a a plateau that, Mm. that we hit and the plateau was developed. I I think that the the growth plateau was developmental. We had powerful services, but not strong systems. Uh, It's the act six model. The complaints will reveal where you need to give some attention to as it relates to your systems. 
And we just got, we were, we were being inundated with that. And Carrie, one of the things that I started seeing was we weren't just losing people who wanted to be offended for mm-hmm. offense's sake. We were losing people and who had legitimate frustration that was a result of us having, I think, impactful worship gatherings that, that drew people there, but weak, flawed, and faulty systems that could not disciple people, could not push them into what the next steps were, and that really stopped us from serving them well. So I think kind of when we went through that season and I, and I saw some key and critical people walking out of our doors, um, I knew that, I could put it this way, that, that great communication, I saw that great communication builds people, but only great leadership builds the house. Wow. <laughs> that's, uh, okay, that's it. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the interview today. I think we'll stop right there, Darius. That was awesome. <laughs> Man, uh, so how did you how did you then go out and find, develop, recruit the people who would build the house? Yeah, that was. This is going to sound super spiritual, but hmm. um, super simple on one end and super spiritual on another. The first thing that I did, I knew I had to. I needed to pray. Hmm. I knew what we needed. I was going to have to to pray in. Um. So. That's part of it. And then the second was I leveraged relationships, Hmm. meaning there were pastors that I reached out to and friends that I knew that I reached out to that I was able to be honest with in the sense of, hey, I do feel called to pastoral ministry. I feel like I'm supposed to be leading this and I can dream it and Hmm. I can design it. But me building it is not the highest and best use of me. And so I need people who have the leadership acumen to be able to to build this, but not the calling or the passion to sit in my seat. And so um, really, I just felt like, man, God, he just sent the people. I had this graphic designer, Kerry, Hmm. out of Houston. I had this graphic designer out of Houston. Who, who came and he saw the church was growing and booming and et cetera. And I was just having a conversation with him about some of the stuff I was feeling. And he said, I know a guy. I used to be on staff at Houston. This guy um, served a previous pastor the same way. I think you guys should meet. He's exactly what you need. Carrie, I met this guy. And it was like a godsend. Hmm. For 13 years, he served as my number two. The only reason he's not my number two now is because he's in heaven. Oh, man. 43 years old. Oh. He passed away October 31st with so lymphoma. Sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. And um, yeah, the, the, and um, you know, I'm still working through the grief process, mm-hmm. even with that, because I lost someone that was so close to me personally. And also so consequential to what we were doing. But the point that I'm making is like literally that people begin to become a part of our team that way. And some people have different stories and we've tried headhunters and 
we tried all of that, but some of our best additions have just come through relationships, just supernatural connections. And, and, um, and I learned, I, I learned, we saw such a difference. You do not go as far as your dream. You go as far as your team. Ooh. Yep. That, that, again, this, we're going to get to communication, but there, there'll be so many drop the mic moments. <laughs> I think in this interview, Darius here, I, I spent a lot of time in words and I got to tell you, you, you have a gift, my friend, you have a gift. Uh, that's true. You only go as far as your team. What have been some other keys to team building? Because I think if you look at scale and that's something I'm just eternally fascinated in, uh, Les McCune has been a frequent flyer on this podcast would say the difference between an organization that grows and an organization that scales is quality team-based decision-making. So you're right. The team, the, you're the lid as a leader, but the team ultimately becomes the lid as well. So any other keys that you would share with leaders about how to build the team that's built Change Church? Yeah, so one of the things I feel like um, that at least has served us well and I don't know if any of this is transferable to another context, but one of the things that I feel like um, has served us well is a culture of honor. Mm. And this is what I mean by that. Being able to recognize who is rich where you are poor Mm. and and submitting to that, even if their seat on the bus is a seat that is quote unquote inferior to yours. So that is something that has served us very well. Now, obviously, I know when it, com- when it, com- when it comes to certain things, my philosophy is I know that, um, as Henry Cloud would say, I'm ridiculously responsible. Yeah. And so um, I'm going to have to land the plane. I'm going to have to make decisions. But there is an awareness. For us, there's an awareness and an appreciation and a recognition that this person is rich in this area, I'm poor in this area, and it doesn't mean that their perspective determines, but it does mean that it contributes in a very unique way. And I think that piece has helped people feel value, feel that they're making a significant contribution in what we're doing, and I think it's helped, helped us with retaining some key players that we needed in key positions who've been presented with better and larger, well, larger opportunities. How, how did you figure all this out, Darius? It's real-time learning. You're still young. You, you, you figured it out faster than some leaders do. And honestly, some leaders never figure it out, right? How did, how did, how did, that, how did all this come to you? carry again. <laughs> I feel like my answers are so underwhelming. But um, pain has not been my preferred teacher. <laughs> but in leadership, it has been the most effective teacher. <laughs> hey, man, that's that's everything I write. It's like out of my pain. So I'm, I'm with you. I wish I was smarter. It's just like I'm slow. It takes me a long time to learn. And pain is a great teacher. Uh, yeah. That's good. Yeah, uh, I, I remember there, there were times where I would, I would want thinkers, but I would treat them like doers. Oh, wow. And then I would lose the thinkers. Hmm. And then I would be stuck with the majority of the thinking weight, complaining that I'm doing all the thinking, not realizing you can't lead and manage thinkers like doers. 
<laughs> and so, yeah. So, as I experienced some of that, it was I was just by the grace of God, um, you know, willing to get the lessons fast and make quick adjustments and and get guidance and coaching and mentorship on on how to manage the kind of people. You know, Andy Stanley talks about this with relationships. I think it applies with leadership. It's asking yourself the question, are you the person that the person you're looking for is looking for? Hmm. Now, he mentions that in the context of dating, but that when I heard that, I applied it immediately because I'm married happily. (laughs) I applied that immediately to my leadership. Okay, I'm looking for a certain type of team member. Am I the kind of leader that the leader I'm looking for is looking for? And for me, that kind of, that also drives and greatly influences my approach to leadership and team building. Okay, that, you know, I've heard Andy say that numerous times and I never did the leadership application. And again, I've been happily married for three decades now. So, you know, I can't say it's it's (laughs) the most relevant question in my life. Um, But that is fascinating. So what does, okay, let's apply that. Uh, This is really good, Darius. I'm I'm enjoying this so much. And none of this is uh, on the questions I sent you, of course. Um, But Okay, what kind of person do you need to be for a thinker and what kind of person do you need to be for a doer? Sure. Okay, so for me, I guess the difference would be I I would recommend giving thinkers guidance, giving doers tasks. Thinkers need guidance, doers need task. So for example, I am a designer in a sense. So I'm not administrative, but I'm strategic. And it's, hey, what kind of disciple do we want to make? Okay. Well, these are some steps that we need to, that we would take to do it. We need to do X, Y, Z, et cetera. But what I've learned is that thinkers want to think it through and some of them can think it through. So what I've learned to do, at least in our context, is attempt to give guidance and direction, in other words, to clarify what the North looks like in that area. Mm. Um, And I got this from something I saw from Stephen Covey years ago. He put everybody in a room. He had everybody close their eyes. And he said, everyone point North. And so everyone's pointing North. Hands are pointing all over the room. Then he asks (laughs) them, "Open." he says, keep pointing and open your eyes. And he's looking and everybody looks around and they see all of these different directions, Right. And his point was, one of the greatest gifts a leader can give the team is clarity. But clarity is making sure they know this is what North looks like for me. Mm. And so that's what I mean when I say giving guidance to a thinker. Like, hey, this is the result for, for us. You plan, you strategize, you, pre- you present, I green light, and you execute. That's an example practically of what it what it looked like for us. Whereas um, with doers, the tasks be- with a thinker, I can just give them the goal. With mm-hmm. a doer, the goal becomes the task. It's like so. It's just, your goal. <laughs> I just want you to do the task for you. Execution of the task is the goal because if you execute the task, it'll get us to the goal. I love it. That that is so so helpful. And thanks for thanks for going down that uh, 
that lane. Uh, I think you're, you're helping a lot of leaders with that. So Darius, last year we had you to rethink leadership um, in Atlanta and you did a talk on the art of communication that, uh, that really brought down the house. And I'm pretty sure Brad Lominick and I gave you the afternoon slot too. So that's really hard to do, uh, but it was on communication. I mean, it was just, uh, I think you might've gotten a standing O. It was, it was incredible. It was on conversational intelligence, CQ. Can you walk us through some of the key points that uh, you shared that day? Because it was so good on communication. Yep. So the conversational intelligence term itself is not mine. Mm. Uh, I did I did what most preachers do. I ripped it off. <laughs> um, <laughs> good job. So anyway, there's actually a book on it. Uh, Judith uh, Glasser actually is responsible for coming up with the term. What I did was I utilized the term in and of itself, but I kind of came up with a definition that I felt like was more aligned with um, what I believed when I hear that word. And so for me, the it, it's it's really really simple. It's this it's this uh, it's this whole idea of possessing the ability to convey what you want people to know, what do you want them to feel, and what do you want them to do, mm. and. My argument was there are five keys that I feel like increase, raise, improve conversational intelligence. And I think number one was clarity. Number two was conviction. Number three was consideration. Number four was content. And number five was creativity. So those are like the five C's that I that I came up with. And I grew up in a Baptist church. And so my dad always used alliteration. Yeah. So if it doesn't rhyme, it's not righteous. <laughs> <laughs> that's but great. Anyway, yeah. That's what I came. Uh, yeah, that's what I came up with. That's good. You you spend a lot of time on communication. It's clear to me. I mean, even in conversation, you're 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 spinning gold. Can you walk us through, and obviously you're extremely well-read. Can you walk us through how you prioritize that? I'm sure some of that is gifting, but clearly a lot of that is development. So how, how do you make sure that you have the time leading a busy growing church and a large organization to really focus on, on the lane where you're best at, casting vision and communication? Carrie, can I, can I really quickly... I hate when people do me like this, but can I just can I tell you the the story that kind of created my passion for communication? One hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, let's go there. Yeah. So this is what happened. I was uh, nineteen years old. I was in my sophomore year of college, Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi, and I was just having a hard time. School was not going well. I came from a high school that was great. They did the best that they could, but. Um, my high school had a graduating class of 33 people. The last census, uh, it's only 630 people in my town. And I went to this to this really, really academically rigorous school in Jackson, Mississippi called Millsaps. And I just wasn't prepared. And so I was struggling academically. I was there playing basketball. Basketball was not going well also. And I had recently gone through a breakup. And so I went through... It was not chemical, but situational depression. And so it would be hard for me to go to class and I would be in the room sleep. And it was just really a rough time for me. And one of my friends invited me to this Bible study. And every 
Tuesday night when I would go there. The guy's name was Keith Quinn. Keith Quinn would speak. Elder Keith Quinn. He would speak, and his words got me through the week. Hmm. Every Tuesday, I would go in emotionally low, and I would come out with hope that I could make it through another week. He rocked my world with his words. Wow. And things for me progressively begin to turn around and I developed not too soon, not too long after that, I kind of accepted a call, call, call to ministry. And the, the point was, I then said to myself, what Keith Quinn did to me, I want to spend the rest of my life doing to other people. Wow. And every time I stand up to speak, I'm not going to say every time, but I, you know what I mean? I, for the I most do. part, when I stand up, when I stand up to, to speak or even when I'm preparing something to speak, I know I'm in that room. Every Sunday that I speak, I know I'm in I'm in that room that those words wow. are helping some people get from week to week. And so for me, I didn't want my legacy to be just someone who built buildings for people to live in. Hmm. I wanted my legacy to be someone who left words for people to live by. So I took, I took, I took a liking to pastoral leadership models who did both, right? So the Martin Lord Jones hmm. and the R.T. Kendalls and the Spurgeons and the Moody's, people who led well, and fed well. They, they did more than leave buildings to sit in. They left words to live by. Now, their words are much more eternal than their buildings. I mean, hmm. we, still read, we still read their stuff. They're in the grave. And they are changing lives, helping preachers and helping people from the grave. And so for me, that kind of created my passion to say, I'm going to, I want to do both well. And, um, I'm probably going to do one better than the other, which is going to be the communication, but I'm going to do both. I want to do both well. And that made me study communicators. Um, back in my day, I had to use VCR tapes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I watched them and I watched preachers. I watched all kinds of preachers. I watched David Jeremiah. I watched GE Patterson, um, I watched E.V. Hill, whoever I could watch, I watched and I listened to. And I realized that if I was going to be an effective communicator, words were going to be my weapon. And so I studied. So every morning for years, I don't do it anymore, but probably for, I don't know, 15 years, I had my Bible, my notepad and the dictionary. And I was memorizing a word a week because really? I knew words. Yep. Words would be my weapon. Because this is what I this is what I saw. I like I like rap. I like I like hip hop music. And one of the things that made rap so easy for me to remember growing up was uh, I recognized rhymes. Like you remember statements and stories. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like as a communicator, if I wanted to make an impact, I had to make give powerful stories and powerful statements because that's what people are going to remember. If I'm speaking for 
30 minutes, 40 minutes. No one's going to remember all of that. But if I can fill it with one-liners that are memorable, they will remember that and they'll live by those words because no one lives by a whole sermon. They just live by parts of the sermon. So anyway, (laughs) I don't even know if I answered your question. No, that that is a brilliant answer. And I think, you know, I've, I've always been a bit of a communicator, but it was only in the last 15 years or so that I've really been pushed to think about the difference between a phrase and a well-crafted phrase. And you're right. There are very specific strategies you can use to make a statement stick, as opposed to just saying something that you won't even remember 30 seconds later. What are some keys in, in your style of communication that you're like, okay, this is how to get uh, a message to stick. What are, what are some of the, the, the tools of the trade, so to speak, that you've developed or learned over, over time, Darius? Well, you know, something I'm developing, well, obviously alliteration is helpful for, mm-hmm. um, has been helpful for me. Not to put you on the spot, but why, why is that? They're mnemonic. I mean, they call it mnemonic um, tricks. You're right. Like nursery rhymes stick. You can still remember nursery rhymes because they rhyme. And so why do you think alliteration has been used so much and why do you think it's still effective? You know, I'm not quite sure uh, what it is about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something, something that, you know, that rhymes, that makes it memorable. I just know as a communicator, I discerned that most of the stuff I remembered rhymed. And even mm. if it didn't, didn't rhyme, it had um, a poetic essence to it. And for me, I decided that that would be something. Now, it, it can be, the, the challenge with that, if it's overkill, it comes off a bit ostentatious and it can right. be distracting. You and, become Dr. Zeus. If, you, if everything yeah, rhymes, you're right. Dr. Zeus, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. Sam I am, so, that's Sam I am. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So for me, it's, it was you know, discerning, hey, this is, this is something that helps statements stick, like you say. And so for me... I decided the parts of the message that I want to stick are going to be the parts of the message that I employ this tool. Hmm. Like, so if I'm doing a message on worry, um, I'm, I'd say don't worry because worry is worthless. Um, and I just feel like there's another way to say that. Mm-hmm. But worry is worthless it's something that that's going to be, it's going to be a statement that sticks. And uh, so for me, I use it, for me, I, I utilize that tactic because for whatever reason, I can't even remember at what point in my you know, speaking journey this happened. I know it was early on in college when I, when I recognized this. And it's something I've been, that I've been utilizing, utilizing ever since. I just, I don't know why, but it works. And like I said, my passion is I want to be to someone in that room what Keith Quinn was to me. And that's not just hope. I don't want to just I'm not just saying inspiration, but answers. I felt like I got more than just hope. I felt like I got answers and he explained things to me. And that's that's something I'm also passionate about when it comes to communication. Um, People like me who needed a little bit more than just the inspiration 
um, I needed I needed some logic to help me be hopeful. Hmm. If, if that makes sense. Um, I, I, so if I was there and, and, and every Tuesday he's, he was just like, God's good. If you're going through a tough time, you're going to get, you're going to be okay. Yeah. Then the way my brain is wired, it wouldn't have been enough for me. I needed, I needed a case to be made uh, that made me confident. Like, okay, so I'm looking at the people in the Bible that he's bringing out. I'm, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a case study. Okay, Job got through his. All right, he got through his. That's way worse than what I'm going through. I can get through mine. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. Yeah. I think it's so, that great combination. Oh, go ahead. Keep going. No, no. I was just saying, so the, the point, I'm just over answering your questions, but the point is that the use of alliteration for me, once I recognize it works, my passion is something that works. So once I recognize it works, it was something that I just made a commitment to to utilize as long as it works. And when it stops working, then I'm going to do something else yeah. because I'm committed to my commitment is to to be to others what Keith Quinn was to me. I think I think the story is so inspiring. And I think that's one of the reasons most of us have some kind of moment in our lives, which, you know, reminds us why we get up every morning to do what we do. That one's so clear. But I love how your approach is a combination of substance and also form, because I've seen really sticky statements that mean nothing. It's like, well, I remember it, but I don't know how it helps me. And sometimes (laughs) you have really, really like, wow, that was a great argument and or really helpful, but you can't remember any of it. Uh, My last question for you on communication, I want to talk about your new book too, Relational Intelligence. But my last question on communication for you, Darius, would be, Do you find that, and I know this probably varies week to week, message to message, but do you normally start trying to find the sticky statement or does it come out of hours of study and at the end you're like, oh, worry is worthless or you don't go as far as your team, you go, or your dream, you go as far as your team. Uh, Like, does that tend to come at the end, at the beginning, or how do you go about finding those phrases? So it, it typically comes at the end for me. Mm-hmm. There are times when in the middle of constructing a message, a talk, a speech, or whatever I'm getting, I get the idea. Um, for me, like you you just mentioned, and you said it much better than I could, and that is it's possible to, to say something that's eloquent that's still empty. You know, yes. like it's – and so for me, because, because my motivation is, all right, someone – is sitting in this room and they need answers and God's word or this talk that I'm giving that's based on God's word, depending on the context is, has answers for them because that is, you know, for the most part, my motivation. Yeah. And, uh, and what's really, what's really driving me. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's a willingness on my part to, to say, Hey, um, whatever I got to do to make sure that that this that they get answers, that's priority. So the substance is priority for me, if that makes sense. So I want to mm-hmm. make sure I'm saying something substantive because that's that's the answer that they need. So that's first. And then when I come back to the message, I'm saying, OK, now, what is a sticky way to say this? So the substance is what's driving. So What's being said is first and then mm. come back and craft 
Now, what's a sticky way to say it? It's good. I, uh, I'm into your alliteration thing. The weight of the ideas come before the words and their expression. That's great. Uh, mm. let, let's talk about your book because you wrote a book on relational intelligence and you kind of make the argument that uh, relationship management gets ignored by the church. I'm not going to disagree with you on that, but what do you mean by that? Like, uh, why are we not very good at relationships in the church? I mean, we should be. We're the church, right? Yeah. And so this is what I mean by that. I mean, I meant that outside of marital slash dating relationships and parental relationships, there's really a vacuum of resources in many Christian contexts, at least in the West, in my experience, that speak to this whole other arena of relationships that we have to manage outside of our house. That's a good point. And um, what I begin to see, I saw this in my own life, but then I begin to see it in a greater way exponentially when I started in a pastoral leadership. And that is people's greatest joy and greatest pain, Carrie, was coming from the same place. It was relationships. Mm-hmm. Marriage, happiest day of their life, divorce, one of the most challenging days of their life. The birth of someone, one of the happiest days of their life. The death of someone, one of the greatest challenges of their life. I got hired, one of the greatest days. I'm, I'm getting let go, one of the most challenging days. So I begin to see like this link to relationships, to every aspect of a person's life, that there was no area of a person's life that was not directly or indirectly impacted by relationships, spiritually, uh, financially, professionally, emotionally. There's no area that wasn't impacted. And so I saw this in our church and I saw it in my own life. Um, And I wanted to get resources that I felt like would help serve me and serve the church well when it came to this area. And it was really, really difficult to find resources that were not in the marriage slash dating or the parental category. Hmm. Uh, you know, that's, that's a, a really astute observation. So you break relationships down into four categories, generally friends, assignments, associates, and advisors. Can you walk us through each of the categories and even why you categorized relationships? Yes. I got a little pushback on this, Carrie, because uh-huh. people felt like people felt like some people felt like me categorizing people is um, treating people like commodities. Hmm. And that's not the intent at all. The for me, relational intelligence is the ability to define and align your relationships. So everyone has levels and circles of orbit in terms of um, relationships. And so the the categorizing of them is not necessarily aligning people, but it is aligning your expectations and your investments. Hmm. It's making sure that you are clear on what on who you can expect what from and who you should or shouldn't be investing in. And I and the whole premise of the book is based on Jesus's um, model of managing relationships. And I think when you look at the way he managed certain relationships, it, um, it, it supports my argument. He, I mean, you just look at the inner circle. There was a different kind of investment he made in them. There were different kind of expectations. 
he had of them than the other nine. So for me, friends, um, associates, uh, assignments, and advisors are just words I came up with to kind of help people see the circles through mm-hmm. which they should look at um, their relationships. And um, here it is. I would say a friend, we talk about this in a book, a friend is family without the last name. Mm. There's a friend, the scripture says, that sticks closer than a brother. I believe that when friendship is functioning properly, no one that's a part of God's kingdom suffers from those kind of relational deficits because what you do not get in natural family, God supplements in spiritual family. Mm -hmm. I do not have any natural brothers, but I don't have a deficit like that in my life because I have friends who are like brothers. And whereas there are people in my life who get my gift, my friends get me. Hmm. And that's, 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 Jesus said, no greater love has no one than this. And they lay down their life for a friend. Everyone may get your gift, but your friends get you. Hmm. Associates, associates are relationships that have formed. And this is where I see Carrie. Many people get hurt and disappointed. They mismanage this relationship because associates are relationships that have formed and they're similar to friendships. However, very often associate relationships are relationships that are, are formed as a result of intersecting schedules or common interests. Mm-hmm. It's we work together, we go to school together, our kids play soccer together and at, or we're in the same fraternity, sorority, uh, social club together, whatever it may be. And as a result of that, we're spending a lot of time together. Yet at the same these people don't necessarily doesn't mean they're bad people. It may mean you may not be interested or explore, but they don't demonstrate the kind of fruit. Jesus said, no tree by the fruit it bears. So we're inspecting fruit, not to judge the tree, but to place the tree. And they may not have the kind of fruit that makes you feel safe enough to go to a place with them emotionally that you would go with, um, that you would go to with a friend. And I feel like Mm -hmm. that's okay. Assignments, I feel like, are really important because this is another word for this would be mentees. Mm-hmm. And I feel like um, when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two in Matthew 10 and he told them how to respond to people that were rejecting him, when he talks about casting pearls before swine, when Paul tells Timothy, those things you've seen and learned in me commit to faithful men, that he's giving some sort of criteria that should be met when it comes to those you're willing to spend and invest your time in um, mentoring and helping. And so that's what I mean when I say assignments, because when you're busy, you have to discern and have to accept that every need is not your responsibility. And you got to be clear on where am I supposed to be making strategic investments of my time and my resources? Cause that's being a good steward of what God's given you. And then the last is advisors. And that is, um, that's mentors, that's coaches, that's pastors. And um, I say, you know, associates may be people you build something with, but advisors are people that build into you. Hmm. They may not build the thing with you, but they're building the person that's building the thing. And I think everybody needs that. 
when um, when the lights came on for you, and I think those are very helpful categories. Uh, John Townsend's been on this podcast. He shared seven different categories. And again, uh, however you categorize it, it's so helpful because the internet's flat and everybody's got access to you and everyone's messaging you and everyone's commenting and everyone's liking. And it's just kind of flat. What kind of difference has categorizing people in your mind made to you? Like how is Darius today different than Darius two decades ago where maybe you didn't have these categories? Um, Number one, I'm probably um, less emotionally frustrated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's fair. (laughs) That's fair. I just think, I I think uh, to some degree, um, I don't know. To some degree, I think I was such an optimist mm. that it made me a poor fruit inspector. And you talk because you talk about inspecting <laughs> fruit. What? Okay, you gotta you gotta explain that. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, um, I mentioned it earlier when Jesus talks about knowing yeah. trees by the fruit that they bear, and I'm not saying that we should define a person by the fruit that they've demonstrated in the past. But I am saying that there are times when fruit that someone is showing you in the past or in the present is an accurate indicator of what you can expect from them in the future. It's like mm. what fruit what fruit does is it shows you the nature of a thing. Like if, so if I see apple and that, you know an apple hanging on an apple tree I know I know that's an apple tree by the fruit that it's you know bearing. And so once you understand the nature of a thing, its behavior becomes predictable to, to some degree. Right. So, Next year, it'll produce apples. <laughs> we, see, we see a pattern here, right? You know, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I, I felt like, man, um, being such an optimist, there are times where I just attributed patterns that I saw with people mm-hmm. to everything but their character. Hmm. It's all, they didn't, they didn't have the right coach. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes that is 1000% true that people can thrive because this relational intelligence thing applies a hundred percent to leader life and leadership. I think Yeah. Um, categories, you would give different you know, names for categories, but the point that I'm making is there'll be times where I would think, Hey, with the right coaching or maybe a different environment or they're in that part of the country and that's why it's not working out. Let me move them to this part of the country and maybe it'll be better. And uh, sometimes patterns that we see are not a result of what's happening with somebody externally. Sometimes it's a result of what's going on with them internally. It's mm-hmm. character. And I've been so, oh man, I've been hurt and disappointed and made poor investments and giving money to people who never give it back and you know and uh-huh just, oh yeah 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 i may have been there as giving, well oh yeah and giving leadership responses like giving more leadership responsibility to people who weren't faithful with the little you know i don't know why i would think that if a person wasn't good with a hundred that they're going to be better with a thousand and yeah. sometimes the sometimes sometimes you can as a leader you can experience an anomaly and you can think that that anomaly now is the norm and it isn't well hasn't been for me at least and so yeah that's kind of the heart of it no i think that's good and would you say some are relationships that are mutual or that give you deposits back like people who will add something to you 
And then perhaps assignments are like, oh, this is going to be a giving relationship. Was that a helpful clarifier for you? Huge. Mm. Night, night and day. And, you know, I think the way you put it was so masterful, in my opinion, because just because here it is, it's this idea of you sow into one person, but you may reap from another. Yes. Yep. And so I think for a season, I had these expectations that I would reap from everyone I sowed into. And that's not the case. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you, you know, you, you contribute and you sow into assignments, but you may, you may reap from friends or you may reap from associates or you may reap from advisors. But yeah, 100%, I think that's a great, great clarification. That just about killed me in ministry where it's like, why? This is just like, you know, if it, you were a bank account, it's like this person is just taking withdrawals. <laughs> There's zero deposits. And uh, yeah. what's so challenging about that is uh, you just realize, no, there are some categories. And, and I love your, your characterization of that as an assignment. Because assignments tend not to be permanent. It's like, oh, I'm just going to build into this person for a season. And, you know, maybe it'll be longer than that. But you can do that if you, if you understand the nature of the relationship. Man, that's huge. Huge. Anything else you want to share? I mean, I can't believe the hour's gone by. It's just flown. Um, anything else you want to share about relational intelligence that you think leaders need to hear? Sure. And that is this. Although everyone is equally valuable in the eyes of God, everyone does not add equal value to you. So I think it's important to uniquely value those that add unique value. Now, and Carrie, I want to tell you why why I say that. And I mentioned to you, my best friend and my my EP, XP, for 13 years is in heaven now. Carrie, they don't make him like him yeah. anymore. And we've been, I mean, I'm blessed. We've got a great, great team. Our team has stepped up in a tremendous way. We've made some amazing additions. So don't get me wrong. I'm not complaining from that perspective. But what he was was such an anomaly. And I would say to any leader, um, if you have that on your team, that's unique and they should be valued uniquely because I have a different vantage point sitting in the seat that I'm in and I would give up all the engagements, whatever comes along with this. I would give it all up just to have him back. Yeah. I think, you know, that's such a good word because we do tend to get pulled in a thousand directions in ministry. And I think, what was his name? Um, his name is Ramon Harper. Ah, uh, you know, losing someone like him. If you don't have Lamone on your team anymore, and you look back and go, "Man, I, what I wouldn't do to spend more time with him." But if you value everyone equally, you get pulled in a million directions. You spend all your time with assignments or with associates. You don't really value someone like that. You realized I can't get those hours back. And somehow in ministry, we feel, and I think in leadership, like we have to serve everyone equally. And I think it's refreshing to see why that's actually not actually even God's design, right? Yes, sir. Hmm. 100%. 100%. Well, Darius, so you've been rich. Oh, listen, man, for- I appreciate you. We're looking forward to rethink leadership. 
People are going to want to know more. Your book is widely available. Zondervan's the publisher. Uh, but where can they find you, Darius? Well, this is, this is what I tell people. Um, my parents made it hard for me when I was learning how to spell, but <laughs> easy for you to find me. Because my, 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 my name is spelled with an H, D-H-A-R-I-U-S, <laughs> Daniels. So therefore, it's Darius Daniels everything. So it's DariusDaniels.com. Mm. Uh, you know, as a matter of fact, Carrie, if people want to take a free assessment, we created a, re- a relational intelligence assessment to just kind of see how people, um, where they help people see where they are in terms of their relational intelligence scale. It's uh, so they can go to my website and take oh, wow. that, but all the social media platforms are, are Darius Daniels. That's awesome. And uh, your name is probably like mine. If you misspell it a bit, you're still going to find it, right? <laughs> Google <laughs> will take you there. <laughs> Darius, I can't thank you enough. We are looking forward to hanging out again at the end of April. And so appreciate you. Yes, sir. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about communication. I want to talk to you about the Sermon 2.0. That's coming up in just a few minutes at the end of the podcast in the What I'm Thinking About segment. In the meantime, if you want more, we have show notes and transcripts at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 356. They're there absolutely free for you. Join the thousands of people who Check that out on a regular basis. And next episode, subscribers, you know, you get this automatically. I've got JP Pocluta back and it was a great conversation. So he led the largest young adult ministry in America and now pastors a more traditional church and talks about, well, how he got a YouTuber to edit his sermons. And it's fascinating. Here's an excerpt from the next episode. But then with that also, as they say something, if we're going to pre-record something or we're, we're creating something, it doesn't even have to be the weekend service. It could be like an equipping video or something along, along those lines. We can then take that into post-production. And we didn't carry, we didn't have somebody who was good at that. And so as I began to think about, okay, who do we need to hire in the midst of this? Because there's a lot of need. We need a CFO. We're looking for a director of operations, kind of an executive pastor, if you will. But I'm like, we need to put all those hires on hold and we need to find content generators, like people who are really good at generating content. So I, I called a local YouTuber and I just said, hey, will you work for us part-time? Like, can we bring you on on contract? One, to consult with us, but two, to help us provide uh, or to create video resources. If you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do because you will get that automatically. And uh, now it's time for what I'm thinking about. So uh, I am thinking about preaching and this is brought to you by Glue. If you haven't yet checked out the amazing things you can learn about your online audience, don't wait another day. Go to glueinsights.com forward slash carry. That's G-L-O-O insights.com forward slash carry. And make sure you check out Serve HQ's online software subscription tools for churches for free for 14 days at servehq.church. So thank you to our partners. They bring you all of this stuff absolutely free. They make sure they are committed to you. We pick our partners really carefully. So please uh, send some love to servehq.church and glueinsights.com forward slash carry. Uh, I would love for you to do that this week. So I am thinking about where the sermon is heading and want to get back to some thinking I've been doing about attention spans. So it's really weird now that we're all online. Uh, a lot of you have discovered over the last year that your online services 
probably need to be shorter, not longer. Uh, shorter messages, shorter segments. And I think that's absolutely true in video. And people say, well, that's just because people have a short attention span. What if it works differently between audio and video? You know, it's no secret for those of you who have listened for years. And I love those of you who message me and say, I've been listening since episode one. And then some of you who've discovered it, you go back, you listen all the way back from episode one, which is amazing. Thank you so much for that. But, you know, when we started this podcast back in 2014, which seems like ages ago, I decided to go long form. And almost everybody told me it wasn't going to work. And I said, yeah, but I want to bring meaningful, life-giving conversations to leaders. And those are never 10 minutes. Like when I have a chat over dinner or lunch or in a green room or on a trip with somebody and I'm meeting leaders, you know, yeah, you can chit chat for five or 10 minutes. But my most meaningful conversations with friends and with leaders are always like hour-ish or longer. And... Um, so I just went ahead all those years ago and started doing long form podcasting. And here we are 12 million downloads later going, huh, maybe this works. So I think that there is an appetite, particularly for audio, for longer attention spans. And it's not just this show, but you look at the, some of the top podcasts in the world, the Joe Rogan Experience, Tim Ferriss Show, and many others have, you know, 10, 100 times as many downloads as my show. And some of those episodes are two to four hours long each. And their listeners are young. So this idea, well, they play video games, they have no attention span. It's like, well, you know, some people play Fortnite for 14 hours at a time. Uh, people actually do have long attention spans. They're also open to deeper, more complex argument. So uh, if you watch the rise of people like Jordan Peterson, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Sam Harris, or even Christopher Hitchens, they have dealt with longer form, complex dialogue in the public sphere, and they have won over a large, young, and largely male audience. So if you talk to any 25-year-old male you happen to be chatting with, uh, they will know the names of all the people I just mentioned, and they have no problem listening to hours of podcasts a week. Uh, the other thing that I think is really changing when it comes to communication is the appetite for honest dialogue. There's so much tribalization on board. If you can just have, and I hope that's what you find in this show, just a pretty honest dialogue about what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. You probably noticed this, but uh, like my guests, if you got them all in a room, wouldn't necessarily agree with each other. And that's okay. And sometimes I don't agree with my guests. Certainly, you know, nothing that I can think of in Darius's interview, but I've had guests on where I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure I believe that, or I'm not sure I would 100% see it that way. But I love bringing you the nuanced argument because there are different views. So if you have an honest dialogue, uh, I think there's an appetite for that. And uh, where is all this going? Well, what if you started releasing longer form audio content like that? And what if that was a way of taking your sermon or your theology or your understanding of who God is or whatever message you're trying to get out there to your audience in a fresh format? Because I think the container of the one hour to 90 minute service on Sunday morning is breaking down faster than ever. I think it's got a place. I think it's got a place in the future. But what if you started, particularly for those of you who like to think more deeply, who like to nuance things and who find, man, I had so much more I wanted to share on Sunday and I just, you know, that wasn't the right forum for it. What if you developed uh, a podcast? Maybe it's like this, maybe it's a different format where you can just have a conversation with people 
and uh, bring them some more nuanced thought. Now, you got to see if it's tracking or not. If you're getting no momentum, that's kind of a clue. But here's what I think about the attention span in the future. Five minutes of boring is five minutes too long, and 60 minutes of fascinating isn't nearly enough. And there is an appetite for deeper ideas. So um, I think there is a huge appetite in the next generation from exploring rather than just trying to, you know, slam dunk argument people into certain ways of thinking. Uh, one of my favorite podcasts and, and a couple of my favorite voices, they've both been on the show, is John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers. This Cultural Moment, that podcast is amazing. Mark's Rebuilders podcast is a great example of that. And uh, I just think you can explore a little bit more in communication uh, what the sermon could be, what a way of reaching people could be, and whether that's longer form on YouTube or longer form in podcasting like that. Just give it some thought because I think the sermon is changing and the audience you want to reach is online and maybe more nuanced, complicated, complex, thoughtful dialogue could be a part of your future. So if you're thinking about communication, don't just think short and polished. That's important. But think about stuff like this. Like, you know what? I didn't script this. I'm just kind of reading through some old notes and sharing this with you openly and honestly and transparently. And maybe you found it helpful. And what if you did the same thing and shared with people? Because I really think until people understand you and your heart, they're not going to buy your message in this day. So some thoughts on the Sermon 2.0. If you like thoughts like this or would like to get a daily dose of, this is just short, like some leadership nuggets, uh, what you can do is I send out a daily email to about 70,000 leaders and uh, you can get it for free. So what you need to do to get that is just text my name, Carrie, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33777. So just Carrie to 33777. And if you'd like to get little morsels of uh, leadership gold, uh, well, maybe it's not gold, maybe it's bronze, maybe it's tarnished, I don't know. But my best shot at leadership, you can do that by texting Carrie to 33777. Well, thanks so much for listening, guys. Back with a fresh episode next time. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.